Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in Canada. This year, 2019, marks the 100th anniversary of an epidemic that, in its day, shook many countries, including Canada, to its knees. This is the great influenza epidemic that in a few months kills something like 50 million people worldwide and over 50,000 individuals in Canada. The so-called Spanish flu was one of the most devastating epidemics of the 20th century, yet it seems largely forgotten in our history. Today, I want to explore the history of this epidemic and its consequences with Esselt Jones, the author of Influenza 1918, Disease, Death, and Struggle in Winnipeg, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2007. Esselt, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Well, until I read your book, I really had no idea about the larger dimensions of this flu epidemic that hit so hard. And it really uh, did strike not just Europe and North America, but Africa and Asia. Can you give us an idea of the flu's global impact? Yeah, in your introduction, you mentioned that the, this pandemic killed about 50 million people. And even in the time that I've been studying um, this pandemic, that estimate continues to rise as we get more information about what was happening in large um, countries like China and India and um, parts of Asia. So there were very few places around the globe that escaped that pandemic. It was there are very few exceptions of places, mostly islands or places that were geographically located um, where there was no route of transmission. So it's an event that strikes virtually the entire world almost simultaneously, especially that fall wave of the pandemic, which began around the end of August and ended in March of uh, March or so of 2019, or sorry, 1919. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you described three identifiable waves, and um, I was very interested in that. Um, but what caused the flu? Why did it come in waves? And when did it really manifest in Canada at the same time everywhere else, or was it slightly different? Well, to some extent, the, the wave pattern depends on transmission routes historically. And in, the, in that sense, Europe and North America have similar sort of patterns, partly because influenza was in a significant way spread through wartime mobilization. So where it appears in different places um, has to do partly with mobilization of both human labor resources and soldiers during that time period. In Canada, we do know that the flu, in retrospect, that the flu appeared in that earlier wave in um, summer of 1918, but the real serious wave was the fall one, the one that began usually around the end of September and, and ran through until the spring. Now researchers talk about, sometimes they're referred to as echo waves um, that are the same organism that occurred even as late as two years later. So our understanding of it, of course, is always changing. But the, the, the wave that, that had the most public attention in Canada was definitely the one that began in late September of 1918. 
Um, and it was kind of reaching its peak in most places right around right now, actually, around the armistice. And uh, it continued on into the uh, winter of um, 1919. Is that correct? Yeah, there was a bit of a lull starting around early December. And then the disease reappears, depending on the location, um, in February, March. Um, and you have that little spring wave, which is much, much smaller. But And to some extent, of course, the wave is, is an epidemiological picture. Um, to some extent, there were cases of flu in the community right through that period. That's just when we see the peaks in the number of cases. So by the spring of 1919, there had been two significant waves, one very large one and one smaller one in the later winter. So many of us have had the flu, um, perhaps uh, all of us, and we've not, of course, died from it. Why was this particular flu so deadly? Um, well, that's a big question. Um, I'm not sure we have a super final picture of why that is the case. It seems to be the case that the immune system of young adult people responded very strongly to the flu and sort of overwhelmed um, the body. So lungs filled with fluid, um, people died. The people who died from the initial viral infection often were very quickly overwhelmed with respiratory failure. There were also a number of people who died from secondary complications, essentially viral pneumonia or bronchitis, and there wasn't treatment for either of those at the time. No one quite knows why exactly this particular strain was as deadly as it was or why this particular strain evolved at that moment in time. There's also some question, of course, about whether people from certain groups in society were more likely to die once they were infected because infection rates were very, very, very significant. So even a conservative estimate would be that about a third of the population um, was infected with influenza, but much smaller numbers, of course, died from it in most cases. Usually in Canada, the figure was about six and a half, six point five per thousand population in mortality, but many more people developed the disease. So there's been a lot of interesting research about why some people may have died in larger numbers than others, particularly people living in poor um, districts of urban centers. In Canada, of course, significant concern around the very high death rates of Indigenous people, which were on average at least 10 times higher than the non-Indigenous population. That that's a point I wanted to ask you about because I had some experience in Stanley Mission in northern Saskatchewan, which is famous because this was the first community that had a church. It was a Anglican missionary church and an indigenous community. And according to a number of people that I spoke to, they left that site and went across the river, the Churchill River, to the other site to uh, basically um, continue to live because of the amount of death that occurred um, yeah. in this area. And it was it sounded devastating. It was described to me as, you know, something close to 50% of the community or close to 50% may have died from this uh, flu. And why did it hit Indigenous communities, particularly those in the North, so hard? 
Well, there are there are some other examples too that echo the the story that you're telling. Um, the Inuit in Labrador, for instance, also had significant sort of population relocation after very high mortality rates. And um, some of your listeners may have heard of the case uh, of Okuk um, or of Hebron. Both of those communities were um, also missionary communities, in this case, Moravian missionaries who had uh, settlements along that coast of Labrador that had been there actually since the 18th century. So one might you know, consider, of course, the importance of colonial relationships that had brought not just influenza, but other diseases. So I'd be interested in the case of the Stanley Mission, for instance, to know whether there were other infectious diseases present in the community at the same time. Mm-hmm. So those may include tuberculosis, but also other um, more epidemic-style um, diseases at the time, like measles, for instance, or scarlet fever or diphtheria. Um, in Labrador, I know that that uh, the com- those communities were simultaneously also dealing with at least one other infectious disease. So it it could that could play a role. Um, influenza has a pattern this this virus because it is so contagious but also so deadly of going through entire families first and communities. Um, so that such a significant number of people are affected by the disease that they're unable to provide even the basic sustenance of life. So people are unable to get water, for instance, or um, to get food or to, or to get fuel to heat their homes. And that is a, a really devastating part of this picture where we have to consider and think about families, including, of course, young children, that were dealing with circumstances where no one um, was healthy enough or still alive so that they could get drinking water, so that they could get food, so that they could heat their homes. And so to some extent, all of those things paint a very difficult picture along with a real challenge getting any kind of basic health care, what we might think of as nursing care that might help someone survive an infection. So the basics plus nursing care may have been absent just because it was just the way in which the the epidemic took hold. And, uh, you know, in in communities like, say, Fort Chipewyan in northern Alberta, um, that community had experienced successive waves of influenza for quite some time before 1918-19. And, in fact, the global pandemic didn't reach their community, but they had a deadly outbreak of influenza in either 1920 or 1921. So we have to consider both the larger economic and social picture of colonialism, and but also the pattern that diseases, infectious diseases had in these communities. You argue that Winnipeg provides an excellent case study of the impact of the flu epidemic in Canada. Why would this be, and was there anything unique or truly unique to Winnipeg compared to other major urban centers in Canada that would make it such an interesting case study? Winnipeg was at that time the third largest city in Canada, so it is a major urban center, um, and in in many respects it has some of the same 
sort of public health conversations and infrastructures in place that cities like Toronto do or Montreal. But there are also some unique aspects of Winnipeg because it is um, such an immigrant hub in that period. So you have uh, the presence of significant numbers of people who have immigrated, um, not in the period immediately leading up to flu, because of course it was wartime, but in the in the period before. So you have many of the social challenges of rapid urban growth and um, immigrant uh, settlement that are happening in other places, but they're sort of more intensified because of the significant numbers of immigrants that were settled in that region in the early 20th century. So it, it, it is an interesting case for looking at some of these social differentials that mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier. So the Champlain Society, as you know, is dedicated to preserving the documentary sources we use to write the history of Canada. Can you describe to us the sources you relied on and were there any that you found particularly revealing while writing this book? Well, one of the interesting challenges of writing disease history in a period before the development of the provincial or federal welfare state, as we now understand it, is that the obvious sources that you might think would be the ones that would help you are very thin. So the official sources, if we can put it that way. And in that period in in Canada, most public health um, programs were administered by local governments, not by provinces. So in Winnipeg, where I did most of my work, there was no provincial Department of Health. Um, So you're looking at local governments. So there's still a lot of research that needs to be done even here in local government records, because I just looked at the government records for the city of Winnipeg. But there were, in order to get at the kind of social implications of influenza, you have to go quite a bit beyond what are, you know, basically just official reports giving you mortality statistics and some insight into what's going on in the communities. So I used newspapers, of course. I also, um, as much as I could, used some of the many immigrant newspapers that were being published in Winnipeg at that time. Um, I was able to translate uh, some uh, immigrant press that was not written in English, uh, particularly useful for me was the help I got translating uh, from Yiddish to English what was going on in the Jewish community, which was a very significant sort of portion of the immigrant community in Winnipeg. But I really wanted to know what happened to families, and so I looked at child welfare records, um, trade union records, records that were you're sort of drilling down outside or, or beyond official health records. Right. And was there any source that particularly struck you in this research? Well, the ones that were really most moving and revealing to me were the records of the Children's Home of Winnipeg, which was a Protestant orphanage, the largest Protestant orphanage, and the records of the Mother's Allowance Commission. Um, The Mother's Allowance was a new public program supporting single mothers. And from those two sources, I was able to find out what happened in cases where one or two parents died of influenza. And I was, I was especially moved to be able to trace the histories of both single mothers and a handful of single fathers because, because of the W curve in mortality that flu had, so many people in early adulthood died. And many of those people, of course, had young families. 
That's right. Had- and I, I was very struck by some of the stories, and uh, I just want to know uh, the ones from the orphanage in particular. Which one of these stories is most etched in your own memory? I was particularly moved by a family where a single father had um, had not had it. He couldn't find any extended family resources to take care of his children and actually ended up leaving Winnipeg in order um, to find work in the period after World War I and wrote letters and sent money and maintained contact with his children. If my memory serves, he had two children in the orphanage. And those children essentially grew up in the orphanage and were eventually um, you know, sent out to do domestic service and so on. Um, in rural Manitoba, at, at least in one case. And he's worked so incredibly hard to try to maintain his relationship with his children. Um, and I, I was struck because we don't think of orphanages as being that kind of place where the mm-hmm. staff there, first of all, he didn't give up guardianship or custody of his children, and the staff there facilitated whatever relationship these fathers were able to have with their kids. And I, I think about what that must have meant to those kids in their lives um, relative to the alternative where, you know, they lost both parents, both their mother who died from influenza and, you know, a father who sort of drifted away. And it, it just, it, it kind of pushes against our sense of, of what happens to parents and children in a post-pandemic context. Um, it really illustrates how hard some of these families worked to reconfigure their family, even if it could never be what it was before. The other thing that I note is that the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919 really came on the heels of the flu epidemic. In your opinion, was there any connection between the two? Well, working in poor people in Winnipeg that year were having a very difficult, difficult time. And I think that one of the things I tried to keep in mind when I did my work was to imagine what it was like to live in that period. So not to just think of flu on its own, but to think of also the impact of the war and the experience of war veterans and the experience of working families during that time when there was increasing labor unrest, uh, very serious increases in the cost of living. And, you know, I think of these traumas as all sort of working together in the lives of people who were living in the city at the time. I wouldn't argue that influenza caused the general strike, but I do think that it's an important piece of our understanding of what working people were going through at the time. There was very specific anger focused around the cost of burying the dead, which escalated during the pandemic. Um, and there, you know, there is labor commentary on that on the record in the written archives. And we know that labor organizations worked as much as they could to support families who lost breadwinners. So there was a a sense of injustice around influenza the way often happens during epidemic outbreaks, especially when that social differential is clear for everyone to see, you know, when the impact of the disease is different by uh, according to sort of financial stability or social status. And people were aware of that at, at, at the time. They didn't much appreciate um, certain public health measures that were taken to close public spaces that 
resulted in over 400 men being put out of work with no compensation. So there were little flashpoints, but there was also this larger picture of the very difficult struggle that people were engaged in and the way that they understood that the, way, the only way to survive that was to not rely on their government at the time or their employers, but to rely on each other. Um, and I think that played an important part in people's sense of solidarity. And that's a very good point. It's just the, of course, before the welfare state, before government played a, a large role, uh, the role of volunteer organizations and particularly women volunteers in dealing with this crisis. What does the experience in Winnipeg tell us about the role of volunteers um, in dealing with this, these kinds of public crises? The volunteer efforts were in some ways very gendered. Um, there were hundreds of female volunteers um, to some extent, we'll never know how deep that volunteerism went. Um, but I would say that death rates in Winnipeg, as elsewhere, would have been far higher were, were it not for the efforts of, of women, some of whom had some formal nursing training. Others had maybe a St. John's Ambulance course, because, of course, many women had done that sort of training during the war as a result of wartime mobilization. And you know, those those women in the hundreds were willing to take the risk and to go out into homes, but also to raise money, to feed people, to give them clean clothes and bedding. Um, and, you know, they argued actually toward the end of the pandemic that as hard as they were working as volunteers, they needed more volunteers and they, they needed, that the city needed to recognize that people needed to be compensated because they couldn't leave their paid employment in order to help others and needed to receive some support for the work that they were doing in the community. So it was a pretty sophisticated discussion about what needed to happen in order to, you know, sort of mobilize people in support of flu victims. Um, and those women were highly organized, and that was true for sort of the Anglo-Canadian middle-class women as well as for many women from their immigrant communities, Jewish women, German women, and so on, Eastern European women who organized along ethnic lines to serve their own communities. My own belief is that this sort of work was integral to how a community like Winnipeg survived that flu outbreak without many more deaths. So what was the long-term legacy of the flu in terms of public health practice in Canada or on the practice of nursing in Canada? Well, Canada developed or, or introduced its first public health department um, in, the, in the fallout of the flu, and my colleague Mark Humphreys has written about that. Um, there was also, I think, at least among some public health officers, um, an increasing sense of the importance of relationships with the community. So if I could give it a shorthand, a shift away from a belief in things like quarantine and isolation and coercive measures, potentially coercive measures toward cooperation with members of the community. And that to me is so interesting. And it, it's a, it's an on, ongoing debate, I think, in public health now as we face the reemergence of some infectious diseases, how do we handle that? 
how do we, you know, deal with the problem of infection? And at the time in World War One, and and at the time that the flu struck, these were very experienced public health officers who were quite accustomed to infectious disease. And by the post 1919 period, they were they really wanted two things. They wanted much better vaccination campaigns. You know, the British uh, one of the British public health officers said, you know, there's no question anymore of keeping the wolf out of the sheepfold. What we have to do is make sure vaccinations are available to everyone and to have a good relationship with our community so that they will come to us. Um, and that that was post-World War One. This was a traumatized world, right? Um, in, mm-hmm. You know, in, in the West, in Europe, in North America. And they really had to rethink um, not just because of the impact of the war, which was bad enough, um, but also in the post-war climate, you know, you had diseases like typhus that were such a serious problem spreading all over um, Europe. How are we going to deal in the future with infectious disease outbreaks now that we've been through this terribly traumatic experience that we couldn't prevent? And it really was an emphasis on ongoing relationships with members of the community, including, you know, volunteers. Well, thank you very much. My guest today was Esselt Jones. We talked about her book, Influenza 1918, Disease, Death, and Struggle in Winnipeg, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2007. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company, History Foundation, and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallden, and this podcast was recorded at Ryerson University on November 11, 2019. It was produced by Michael Smith. We look forward to you joining us again.